Good morning. Boy, it's great to see everybody. Those lights are really bright, aren't they? Whoa. Yeah, it's great to see everybody this morning. This sort of wakes you up. I mean, you think coffee will do it, but you turn those bright lights on, and it's just, just amazing. Okay, a couple of announcements. I, wanted to, I was asked to announce that Chafer Seminary is having a course this next uh, spring on uh, ecclesiology and eschatology. So if this sort of whets your appetite to learn a little bit more about what the Bible says about the future, then uh, you can uh, walk down the hall, talk to Bev uh, Penner, and find out and get a little bit more information about that. I want to uh, thank Eric for uh, coming up with the idea for this conference and for the elders here at um, Hoffman Town for... Um, having this conference and for being so gracious and generous to Chafer Seminary, offering us the opportunity to office here, have classes here, and we hope to really use this as a way to uh, ex expose who we are to Hoffmantown uh, family and also an opportunity to uh, develop more of a ministry here as well as in the um, Albuquerque area. So I'm really looking forward to that. And we just appreciate uh, this opportunity uh, so very much to be here. Uh, one other note, uh, since we are about to go into a very important election, uh, last night, Pastor mentioned that it's good for you to go vote, vote for biblical values. As I always tell my people, vote early, vote often. Before we get into the word this morning, let's uh, bow our heads together. I always like to start with a word of prayer, focus a little bit, have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to uh, focus on the study of God's word. Uh, this is a, essential to worship. Jesus said we worship, we're to worship in the church age by means of the spirit and by means of truth, and we're to walk by the spirit. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit, so we need to confess sin to recover. So I always uh, emphasize the importance of uh, being spiritually prepared. The tribulation, as you're going to learn this morning, is not only about the, the devastation of divine judgment on rebellious mankind, but it is one of the richest times of worship in heaven. And uh, that's discoverable as you read the book of Revelation. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll begin. Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity to come together for, uh, to focus upon you, to focus upon your word, to be reminded that... that uh, uh, when we see unjust suffering and unrighteousness in the world around us, that there will be a resolution and that you will bring things to a close. And that is what studying of uh, eschatology really focuses on, how you will make right all that has been wrong. Father, we're thankful for Eric, for Hoffmantown Church, for their stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the truth of your word. And we pray that this uh, conference would be a great opportunity to focus on you, to challenge people to live with the end in mind and to be uh, spiritually prepared for the end game, and that you would use this for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, this morning, we are following things in progression. Last night, uh, Andy talked. I'm having a little trouble getting my laptop to come up. There, let me try it again. Okay. 
Is that coming up? There we go. Okay, we, are, uh, we move from the rapture and then what comes after the rapture. And actually, Andy had the simplest task last night because he got to talk about the rapture. The rapture takes place in the twinkling of an eye, 1 64th of a second. This morning, my job's a little more challenging. I'm going to be talking about the tribulation. Tribulation takes place in seven years, so I have an hour to cover seven years. But I feel sorry for Charlie Clough. He's got to cover the thousand-year reign of Christ and eternity in only an hour. So this morning, we're going to focus on the tribulation by the numbers. Just look at the basics to try to get a handle on the tribulation so that when you come away, you understand the basic things that are happening, who the basic people are that are in the tribulation and all of the basic judgments that take place. And once you get that, then you can begin to think about uh, the details. So let's get a little chart up here to understand the uh, uh, basic panorama of the end of the ages. We are currently in the church age. The church age ends with an event called the rapture of the church, which we studied last night. This does not begin the tribulation. There will be a period, an interim period. We don't know how long. And then there will be the signing of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. And that's what starts the countdown of what is known as Daniel's 70th week, something we'll look at in much more detail. The end of the tribulation occurs when Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the second coming. That's followed by some judgments, and then he establishes his kingdom where he rules on the earth from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's the panoramic scope. So the way we're going to look at this is in terms of uh, trying to cut down some of the details. We look at all the details in Scripture, and you could spend not just three days but or 300 days, but you could spend 3,000 days, and you still wouldn't cover all the details in prophecy. Some people ask, why should I study prophecy? I mean, I have enough problems with my finances, my marriage, my job, politics, all of this, why should I spend all this time studying prophecy? Well, when the Bible was originally revealed in the 66 books, 39 of the Old Testament, 27 of the New, 27% was prophecy. That means that a little more than one out of every four verses was prophetic. When you get to the end of the revelation of uh, the New Testament, it's, you have a certain amount of fulfillment. One-third of that 27% was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Some of it was Old Testament fulfillment. But you get down to where 18% today is unfulfilled prophecy. That's a little bit less than one out of every five verses. So when you pick up your Bible, just think one out of every five verses is going to talk about unfulfilled prophecy. And God thinks it's important for you to know that he's taken the time to reveal it, to preserve it, and to have it translated so that you can have it in your hand. But this is a lot of information. So we're going to use this illustration of a clothesline. Many of us are familiar with that, that uh, some of you remember hanging out your clothes to dry and 
weather like you have here in Albuquerque, you probably do that a little more often than we do in Houston. But what we're going to do is instead of looking at all the details of Scripture, all the details hanging on that clothesline of Scripture, we're going to call it down to four basic things. And so we're going to look at these four items, and that's going to help us organize our understanding of uh, prophetic events. So the numbers of the tribulation go like this. Number one, there is one abomination of desolation. One abomination of desolation. Two, there are two beasts and two witnesses. Two beasts and two witnesses. One abomination of desolation, two beasts and two witnesses. There are three series of divine judgments. Three series of divine judgments. And then for four, we're going to look at the four living creatures that are before the throne of God. And that means we're going to end on a note of, of worship and focusing on the glory of, of God. So let's start with the first point, which is the abomination of desolation. One, abomination of desolation. Now, what does this mean? Actually, the word abomination has to do with the desecration of something or the desolation of something. But desecration indicates that, that something holy has been profaned, and that's what happens. That The temple is profaned uh, by the Antichrist. And it, the word for desolation is the word that means to render something like a desert or empty or, or desolate. So this term is used by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, 15, when he warned that the, his disciples and those who would be alive at that time. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, one thing you should note, when we talk about the tribulation, there are several key passages. Daniel 9, which we'll look at in a little bit, is one. Matthew 24 and 25 is all about the tribulation. It's not about the church age. Jesus is answering the question his disciples asked, what are the signs of your coming? As we learned last night, the rapture is a signless event. There are no signs for the rapture. So the signs in Matthew 24 and 25 are all related to answering that question. The description of the tribulation in Matthew 24, the judgments in Matthew 25 are all related to what happens within the tribulation period. And there is a warning that Jesus gives about this and why he tells them about the abomination is when they see it, they're to flee to the mountains. That would be to the hill country of Judah. And he says, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. See, this isn't tribulation like other adversity. John 16, 20, uh, 1633 says that, that in this world we will have tribulation. This isn't some sort of, uh, the rapture isn't an escapism from having personal adversity. We can think about Christians in Syria, Christians in Iraq, Christians in Iran, Christians in the former Soviet Union, uh, Christians in many places in this world that come under tremendous persecution that's not unlike that that Christians will experience during this period known as uh, the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. But there's a uniqueness to this. Unique means one of a kind. That means it only happens one time. 
It doesn't happen several times. So that distinguishes the level of suffering and adversity and the extremes to this unique period. Well, as Jesus said, this term comes from Daniel chapter 9, and it describes that last period of time before the Lord comes back as a seven-year period. It is marked out by the text as beginning when the prince who is to come signs a covenant with Israel, and it uh, ends when Messiah returns. In the midpoint, there is this event called the abomination of desolation, and all of this is related to God's plan for the church. Right? No. Israel, right? You have to make that distinction that's fundamental. This, as we'll see in the passage, this is for Israel. In fact, in Jeremiah 37, one of the verses that uh, talks about the tribulation defines it as a time for Jacob's trouble. New American Standard calls it Jacob's distress. Jacob is a term for Israel. It is specifically related to God's plan for Israel, not God's plan for the church. In Daniel 9.24, Gabriel appears to uh, Daniel in answer to a prayer and gives him a timetable for the nation Israel. And he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. That's Israel. Now, what we're going to learn is that phrase, 70 weeks, doesn't mean in the Hebrew, 70 weeks, it means 70 periods of seven. Okay, so it could be weeks, it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be years. Days and weeks don't work out. Months don't work out. Years work out. So it relates to a period of uh, literally 490 years. 70 times 7, a period of 7 equals 490. In verse 25 we read, So you are to know, this is written for our knowledge, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So this decree is going to allow the Jews to come back from captivity. Remember, they're in the Babylonian captivity. To come back to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And in the last line, it says, with plaza and moat. That means the defenses, the walls of Jerusalem. So they came back in 538, but it wasn't until Nehemiah's time that they rebuilt the wall. So that's how we can date the beginning of this. So it begins with this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and the, then uh, it, it ends with Messiah the Prince coming. So that talks about this first section is going to go from the decree to restore and rebuild to the coming of Messiah the Prince, and that's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, I'm not real good at math. Charlie's the math guy, went to MIT. I can't add one and one and get the same answer three times in a row. But I can still figure out that 62 and seven is not 70. It's 69. Something's missing. Okay, let's look at this. We have the decree to restore which we can date to a decree from Artaxerxes on March the 5th, 444 B.C. And this kicks off that timetable. So you have the 7 plus 62 or the 69 weeks. And if you trace that out, it's 173,880 days. And it ends on March the 30th of A.D. 33, which is the Palm Sunday. That's the day Jesus enters into Jerusalem, what we refer to as the triumphal entry. Now, as we read the text, what we learn is that 
as Daniel talks, he says, after the 69th week, after that, so there's a pause. God hits the pause button for Israel. He says, after that, the Messiah is cut off. That is the cross. And then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the temple. Now, what we'll learn from this in Daniel 9.26 is the Messiah is cut off in AD 33. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, the temple. In eight, and that happened in AD 70. So there's at least a pause of about 40 years between uh, the, come, uh, the arrival of the Messiah in, in Jerusalem and uh, the destruction of the sanctuary. But that pause has continued through the church age all the way to the present. So when we look at this timetable and we do the math, 70 times 7 is 490 years. 69 times 7 is 483 years. That's a seven-year difference. So what happened to the seven years? Where did those other seven years go? Well, as we just read in Daniel 9, it talks about the destruction of the temple. And I put this picture up here because this is just a, a, a little bit to the south of the uh, western wall, the Wailing Wall, the Kotel in, in Jerusalem. This wall that's on the right is the old retaining wall that was built by Herod. And if you look in the center there, you can make out a little bit of the rubble that's there. These were the stones that were pushed down by the Romans uh, from the walls surrounding uh, the temple. And you can see the deep depressions in the rock foundation below uh, as these rocks fell and crushed the road below. So that prophecy was fulfilled literally. So if the prophecy that we read in the Old Testament that has been fulfilled was fulfilled literally, then we should interpret all prophecy that hasn't yet been fulfilled also in a literal literal fashion. So what we read in verse 27 is that he, the, the prince or the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many, that's Israel, for one week, that's seven years, but in the middle of the week. So you have this seven-year period, and in the middle of the week something happens, and he brings an end to sacrifice and offering. Where do you think that happens? In the temple. There will be a tribulation temple, a rebuilt temple, and that there will be the allowance and the re uh, restoration of temple, daily temple sacrifices. But halfway through the uh, tribulation, the Antichrist will end that. He'll do some other things, but this passage just tells us he ends that, and that's the abomination of desolation. So what we see from these verses is that the... Uh, this period begins with the coming prince, and it ends when Messiah returns, and it's two, three-and-a-half-year periods. And just to let you know, this is 42 months, and it's 1,260 days. And when you do the math, you realize that Israel operated on a lunar calendar of 30-day months. So that makes all the numbers work, work out. So this is the 70th week of Daniel. It's unfulfilled, and it focuses on Israel. It is not about uh, the church. So the third temple is an apostate temple, we believe, because uh, it's built by uh, religious Jews 
who have not yet accepted Jesus as Messiah. It's all about uh, Israel. A couple of other places in Daniel mentioned the abomination of desolation. Uh, Daniel 11.31 talks about this in terms of military conquest by the Antichrist. And in Daniel 12.11, that from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there's going to be 1,290 days. We say, wait a minute, Robbie, you just said it's 1,260 days. That brings us to the, to the second coming, but then there's a 30-day transition period after that. That's what that's talking about. So what we see is that there'll be two stages to the abomination of desolation. First of all, the presence of the Antichrist himself in the temple. He will enter into the Holy of Holies and set himself up personally to be worshiped as God. And then he will set up an image of himself in the temple. That's phase two. And that apparently remains for another 30 days in this cleaning up or this mopping up operation that occurs after the initial return of Christ. So it's uh, something like this. This is one artist uh, rendition of the image in the uh, tribulation temple. So we're going to go through four numbers, one, two, three, and four. Number one is what? Abomination of desolation, number one. What's number two? Okay, see if anybody remembers. Two beasts. And two witnesses. The first beast we usually refer to as the Antichrist, and the second beast we refer to as the false prophet. So I have them pictured as wolves because they are ravenous and they are the antagonist of the lamb. We have two beasts and two witnesses. We have the um, protagonists in the tribulation period are the two witnesses. They're the heroes, the good guys, and the two bad guys are the uh, two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. We'll talk first about the Antichrist. The Antichrist, this term is used only one passage in Scripture, but it's become the most common title for uh, the first beast. And it's often used metaphorically. In fact, if you... Uh, ever go to a news website called the Drudge Report. Yesterday, there was a headline that the FBI, many people in the FBI saw Hillary Clinton as the Antichrist. Now, if you read the article, they were using that metaphorically. They didn't think she was literally the Antichrist, but it just was depicting the fact that they thought she was pretty evil. And, um, but we have this term used one time. It's in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, verses 18 to 22, where uh, John says, children, it's the last hour. See, he thought it was the last hour in roughly AD 90. It's a long hour, isn't it? Okay. It's the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. So there's one super bad guy the first beast, but there are many potential antichrists. As I said last night, Satan does not know when the rapture is going to occur any more than you or I do. So he always has to have a system in place, a person in place that he can immediately move into that slot. First John 2.22, who's the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ? This is the antichrist. Now the word antichrist comes from the Greek word antichristos, which means a substitute Christ, not someone who is against Christ. That's a Latin uh, 
preposition. This is Greek, but someone who is a substitute. He thinks that he can do for mankind what only the Messiah can do. Sort of like the UN. If you've ever been to the UN building in New York, they have emblazoned carved in stone over the entry, uh, the verse from Isaiah chapter 2 about turning your uh, swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks and man will make war no more. They are claiming for themselves a messianic privilege. So the UN is an antichrist type organization. That's the idea, substitute Christ. Second thing, we see that there's a variety of titles that are given to him in the in the scripture, he's called the prince who is to come in Daniel chapter 9. He's called the prince who makes desolate in Daniel 9, 27. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 is another critical chapter on the Antichrist. There he is called the man of lawlessness. And then in Revelation, he is called the beast. He's the first beast. He, third, he rises to power during this transition stage after the rapture. We won't know who he is. You can guess. Maybe he's Gorbachev and he had the mark of the beast on his forehead. Who knows? Uh, we don't know. We won't know until uh, the falling away first occurs. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. That is the day of the Lord, which is another term used for the tribulation. The day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So you have an order of events that there's the falling away, then the man of sin is revealed, and then you have the day of the Lord. And they may be coming at exactly the same time. It's not giving a precise order here, I don't think, other than falling away first, and then the man of sin is revealed. We won't be here. The word translated falling away is the Greek word apostasia, where we get our English word apostasy. But the Greek word apostasy also means departure. It's applied to uh, truth as departure from the truth. But it's also used of ships departing from port, of people departing to go on a trip. And so I believe, and many uh, scholars believe, there's a lot of debate over this, I understand, but I think the best argument is that this means departure. It should be translated as departure. In fact, Tyndale, I believe, translated it as, as departure in his translation of the English text back in the 1530s. The day will not come unless the departure is first. I would take that to be the rapture. So the man of sin is revealed for sure, when he signs his peace treaty with Israel, and that kicks off that Daniel's 70th week. We know that he comes out of the uh, remains of the Roman Empire. Uh, he's not Middle Eastern. He's not Asian. I believe he comes out of, of Europe. Now, today it's very popular to think about, and you'll hear many people teach about, a Muslim antichrist. Let me explain why I do not think that he's going to be Muslim. If you look at what the uh, literalists, the Muslim literalists do, they destroy religious, um, any kind of religious object or any kind of religious memorial. They've destroyed the tomb of Jonah. They have destroyed numerous churches and Buddhas and many other things. They hate any image of anything religious, uh, including any depiction, of course, of, of Muhammad. 
So when the Antichrist signs this peace treaty with Israel, apparently it is going to allow the rebuilding of a third temple and the reinstitution of daily sacrifices. Do you think a leader of ISIS is going to allow that? Do you think a leader of Hamas or Hezbollah is going to allow that? I don't think so. I don't think any Muslim is going to allow the Jews to rebuild a third temple on the Temple Mount and reinstitute sacrifices. So I do not think that, that that fits at all. The imagery in Scripture, if we go to the image in D Daniel chapter 2, is that the, the fourth level, the, the legs of iron, represented the Roman Empire. The final empire is represented by a mix of iron and clay. Iron there represents remains of the old Roman Empire. The clay would represent uh, new elements that are added to it. So that's the empire, a ten-nation confederacy that comes out of a primarily European background. I do not think this is going to be, there's going to be a Muslim antichrist. He sets himself up to be worshipped as God. This is the abomination of desolation, Daniel 11.36. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Fifth, he will make war against all believers in Jesus. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. Sixth, he's going to establish a mark. We talked about this in Q&A last night. He's going to establish a mark which signifies religious allegiance to him and a rejection of Jesus. And if you don't have this mark, you can't buy or sell. So it's going to really put pressure on people. If you want to live, you want to buy food, then you have to take the mark. Revelation 13, 16 says that he, and this is a reference to the second beast, he's the, he's the hit man, he's the, he's the guy who executes the plans of the Antichrist. He will cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. It's not in, I don't think it's an implant, it is on. It could be a tattoo. The word for Mark Karagma there could indicate a tattoo, something, that, something that's visible. So you can look at somebody and tell just by looking at them if they have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist, just by, by looking at them. Some people think it's going to be like a, a UPC code, and I don't think that's going to be what it is. Some people think it's an, an embedded chip. I don't think that's what it's going to be. It's going to be something very visible, like a tattoo, something like that. Seventh, he's going to be involved in strong deception. And people are going to willingly believe the lie because they, they, they want to survive. It's a survival instinct. We're told this in Matthew 24, 24. It says that false Christ, messiahs, and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Have you picked out the deception? 2 Thess 2.11 says, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Can you spot the deception? There's our wolf in sheep's clothing. He's the substitute Messiah. 
So he's going to set himself up to be worshipped in the temple of God. This is the abomination of desolation. So it's going to be very religious. And I believe that mark of the beast is going to be a religious uh, swearing of of allegiance uh, to the Antichrist. It's not going to be just, oh, fill out your credit card application and get the mark. You're going to be swearing allegiance. People, it's going to be a very conscientious thing. And I think in the, in the tribulation period, the spiritual realities are going to be very obvious and very, very clear. We'll see that in a minute. At the end of the sixth seal judgment, when there is this it's like an asteroid shower coming upon the earth, and it says the kings of the earth hid in the caves, and, and, and they, they yelled, they screamed, they shook their fists, because of the, the, the wrath of the Lamb. They understand that, that what is happening to them is coming from the Lamb of God. So everybody's going to know what the issues are. The mark doesn't come into play until halfway through, and that's uh, much later than the sixth seal judgment. His destiny is that he will be sent to the lake of fire along with the false prophet at the after the conclusion of the campaign of Armageddon. And then the 10th point is a question that comes up often, is he Jewish or Gentile? And uh, he's probably Gentile. Uh, Revelation 13.1 says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea. The second beast comes out of the land. So the the sea is often representative of the tumultuous uh, history of Gentile nations. So the, the... it's more than likely that the first beast is a Gentile. I think the second beast is going to be Jewish, or more likely that he'll be Jewish. He's described in Revelation 13, 11 to 18. So we have the first beast, the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. And he's called another beast in Revelation 13, 11. And the Greek word there indicates another of the same kind. So he's going to be just like the first beast, and he is going to be uh, demonic, and he is going to also be empowered or energized by, by Satan. The, what we learn about him, I've got four things. First of all, the false prophet is another beast of the same kind, just like the first. Second, He's the one who initiates the economic policy and causes the earth dwellers to worship the first beast and to make an image of him. And he will have all those who do not worship the beast executed. So he is the enforcer of the Antichrist. He is also going to perform signs, wonders, and miracles. He will bring down fire from heaven. Who else brought down fire from heaven? Elijah. Back in 1 Kings, Elijah brought down fire from heaven and the fire of God completely consumed uh, the, the uh, altar and the offering and everything that was there. So he's imitating these prophets. This is also going on by the two witnesses at the same time. So there, it's like the battle between Pharaoh's magicians and, the, and, and Moses and Aaron. So there's going to be this duplication of the miracles of the, uh, of the two witnesses. Fourth, he carries out the policy to force all to take the mark of the beast. So it's going to be a time of great economic economic oppression. 
and uh, we've already talked about this, that he takes this mark that is, the word karagma means something that is engraved, etched, branded, or cut, something that is imprinted or stamped on something. So I think it's an external visible mark. So we have the two witnesses, I mean, excuse me, the two beasts, the antichrist and the false prophet, and then we have the two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? A lot of speculation because people, they, people recognize that their ministry is like that of Old Testament prophets. So some people say it's Enoch because he never physically died. Scripture says he walked with God and was not. We also have Elijah who went to heaven on a chariot. Those two didn't die, so people say, ah, it's going to be Enoch and Elijah. Others say it's going to be Moses and Elijah. Uh, a couple of other things, but let's look at what this scripture says. The, first of all, it says in Revelation 11:3 that they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, that's half of the tribulation. So it's either going to be the first half or it's going to be the second half. But it's not going to be like the middle of the first half to the middle of the second half because this term is used so much, the 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, that those are technical terms for either the first half or the second half. Now, we'll have to decide which half is this. We'll get to that. Second, the two witnesses have prophetic ministry similar to Moses and Elijah, but they're not Moses and Elijah because Moses and Elijah have already died. They've already gone to, gone to heaven. Now, how do we know that? Elijah went up in a chariot. How can I say that? Well, let's look at the text quickly. Matthew eleven fourteen. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist because in Malachi, at the end of Malachi, Malachi 4, he says that Elijah must come before the Messiah. Elijah's going to announce the Messiah. Is that going to be literal Elijah or somebody like Elijah? Well, the person who came on the scene who announced who was the forerunner of the Messiah was John the Baptist. And Jesus said, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah. So he came to fulfill that Elijah type role. So that tells us right away that it's not talking about a literal resurrection or return of, of Elijah, but someone who, who has the same kind of role that Elijah played. We also see this in Matthew 17, 12, where Jesus said, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. Who would that be? John the Baptist. So there he makes another definitive statement. Elijah has come already and they did not know him. So uh, we, have, we, we, we don't get a literal Elijah. We're going to have somebody who performs miracles like Elijah and Moses and who they will function in that kind of a role. Their role is to be witnesses, witnesses of the gospel and witnesses against the kingdom of the Antichrist, like a prophet. A prophet is, uh, played a role in the Old Testament like a prosecutor. He is representing the kingdom of God, representing the throne of God, and prosecuting Israel for, for violating the law. Uh, this, these two witnesses will be prosecuting the earth dwellers, a technical term for unbelievers in the, in the tribulation. They will be prosecuting the earth dwellers for their failure to obey God. They will also be witnessing, witnesses of the gospel uh, so that many will be saved. After the Antichrist murders them, 
all of the world will rejoice and view their bodies for three and a half years. There's going to be a three and a half day Christmas party, celebration, combination, Christmas, New Year's, birthday parties and everything. It's going to be a worldwide blowout as everybody celebrates their death. This happens, how long have they been on the earth by the time they die? 1,260 days. Well, if there are 1,260 days from the abomination of desolation to the end of the tribulation, what is happening at the end of the tribulation? The seventh bold judgment, Jesus returning to defeat the armies of the Antichrist uh, at the campaign of Armageddon, which will be going on probably for a couple of months. Do you think they're going to be having a party during that time over the death of the prophets? I don't think so. So this has to be in the first half. This celebration occurs as the Antichrist is, is uh, demonstrating his victory. He's received this head wound. He's been brought back to life, and he sets himself up to be God. That's the basic scenario. And then after three and a half days of their being in the grave, the breath of life enters them, and God raises them from the dead, and then they, he calls them to heaven, and they ascend to heaven. It's another rapture. And then we're told in the same hour, there's this great earthquake in Jerusalem. A tenth of the city falls and 7,000 people are killed. So God marks that event and brings a judgment on Jerusalem for having rejected the ministry of these two prophets. So when we count the numbers, number one is what? Abomination of desolation. Number two is what? Two beasts, two witnesses. Very good. Number three is what? We're not there yet. Three series of judgments. We have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Now, these are three consecutive series of judgments. One follows the other. In fact, we don't have time to go into this, but if you read through the book of Revelation from Revelation 4 to Revelation 19, it's in roughly chronological order. But like any good novel or story, the scene shifts. So you'll have a scene on the earth, you'll have a scene in heaven, then a scene on the earth, then it's seen in heaven. Just like if you read something like a James Patterson novel, you'll have one scene where you're with the detectives, another scene with, your, with, with the victims, another scene when you're with uh, the bad guys. And your mind sorts that out and you realize these are just uh, following a roughly chronological order, but you're seeing things that are happening simultaneously from chapter to chapter. That's what you see in the book of Revelation. So you have these seal judgments that take place. And then they're followed by a trumpet judgment. And the trumpet judgments are so much worse that when they begin to be revealed, there's silence in heaven, John says, for about a half an hour. Stunned silence because of the horrific nature of the seven trumpet judgments. Then if you're reading through Revelation, you have Revelation 10, 11, 12, 13. And that's where you get your, your basic, uh, you're going to pause and you're going to talk about other key things that are going on in heaven. You're going to get a description of the two witnesses. You're going to talk about the rise of the Antichrist. And you're going to talk about what's going on with Israel. Then you come back and you have these seven bold judgments in Revelation 15 
and 16. The seventh bowl judgment is going to take you right to the campaign of Armageddon. Then 17 and 18 describe the destruction of Babylon. Describe the destruction of Babylon. And then 19 is the Lord Jesus Christ returning. So we'll go through this fairly quickly. You have the seal judgments. So we've had the rapture of the church. And the seal judgments take place in the first 21 months of the tribulation. Now, I know that there are people who take different, different scenarios. I actually had a paper published in uh, the Dallas Seminary Theological Journal on this uh, and did a tremendous amount of study on, on this and came to a conclusion, which a number of others have come to, that the seal and trumpet judgments are in the first half. And they begin with the four horsemen, the four horses of the apocalypse. There's a world conquest and there's open war. It's a terrible time and this leads to economic worldwide famine and then a massive death. A quarter of the earth's population is going to die during this first uh, maybe year of the, of the uh, tribulation period. It's a, a phenomenally horrible time. Plus there's going to be the death of, of hundreds of thousands uh, maybe millions of, of, of Christians, those who come to Christ after the rapture and in the beginning part of the tribulation and they're martyred and they're pictured as being under the altar in uh, Revelation chapter 6 and in Revelation chapter 7 it's going to say that they are without number. There's, there's a huge number. There are going to be physical disturbances on the earth. That's this, it's like an asteroid shower that comes. And the kings of the earth shake their fist against, the lamb, against God and the, the Lamb. They know where the judgments are uh, coming from, where they're originating. This is then followed by seven trumpet judgments. The seventh seal is opened. And you have these trumpet judgments. Now, what are these seals? In Revelation 4 and 5, God the Father is on, pictured on the throne, and he's got a scroll. This scroll probably represents a title deed to the earth, the title deed to the kingdom. And the question that the angels are asking is, who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to take it and take control of the kingdom? The only one that's worthy is the lamb. The lamb takes the scroll and then he begins to open it. First one seal, then another. When he opens that seventh seal, it reveals these seven trumpet judgments. And in the seven trumpet judgments, they are even more horrific than the first. These are the one-thirds. And so we had a quarter of the earth's population destroyed in the seal judgments. And now a third of the earth's population will die in these judgments. So that by the time you get to the halfway point of the tribulation, half of the world's population has died. In the first trumpet judgment, a third of the trees and grass are burned up from the hail fire mixed with blood that comes down upon the earth. In the second trumpet judgment, a burning mountain goes into the sea and the saltwater sea is uh, affected so that a third of the sea turns to blood, a third of the sea creatures die, a third of the ships are destroyed, which plays havoc with trying to move troops or produce or food or technology around the earth. A third of the fresh water uh, is going to be uh, made bitter when uh, this uh, mountain, this wormwood falls into the fresh water in the third trumpet judgment. 
Then in the fourth trumpet judgment, you see these signs in the heavens where the sun is darkened. It loses a third of its, of its light. We don't understand that geophysically. We, how does that happen? Um, or solar physically. The moon, which reflects the sun, of course, would have its light reduced by a third. And the stars are darkened. Now, is this something that happens to them individually, or is this because there's some sort of darkness that comes upon the atmosphere of the earth so that uh, it, these things aren't as visible? It could, could very well be the latter. And then we get to the fifth. This is very bizarre. The fifth trumpet judgment is the first of three woes. The fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgment are called the three woes. This is what I call the demonic scorpion kings. They are released from the abyss. They have tails like scorpions and they sting people. They won't kill them, but they will suffer and wish they were dead. It brings five months of torment upon the face of the earth. then you have the sixth trumpet judgment, and this is a, a demonic army that's been kept in reserve under the Euphrates River, which is to the east of Israel, the east of Jerusalem. It flows through Iraq, not too far from Babylon. And so you have this demonic army that is released, and as a result of that, a third of humanity is killed. That brings us to the midpoint of the tribulation. And so midpoint issues are then talked about in Revelation. You have uh, the angel with the little book in Revelation 10. You have the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 and their death. And you have then in Revelation 12, the uh, uh, overview of God's uh, work with Israel. And they're fleeing to the wilderness, which occurs when Jesus said, when you see the sign, the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. They're Flee, Israel flees to the wilderness there. So it, it sort of brings us up to date to events in the halfway point. And then this is followed by the bold judgments. And these are even more horrific. There are going to be boils and sores that appear on every person that has the mark of the beast. In the second bold judgment, uh, there's going to be blood into the sea. All of the saltwater oceans will turn to blood. Now, I don't think this is permanent. I think it's comparable to what happened in Egypt during the plagues, where this is something that happened for maybe uh, uh, a short period of time, days or weeks, uh, something like that. Then it's followed by the fresh water being turned into blood in the third bold judgment. Then there will be a heating up of the, of the sun. This is where you have real global warming. And there will be a scorching on the earth. And then you come to the fifth, where there's darkness that comes upon the throne of the beast. And people will have these sores and everything. It says they will be under such pain that they will gnaw their tongues because of their pain. But yet they still don't repent. And that's a drumbeat saying all through the last half of the tribulation. That people will still not repent. And I take it that after the midpoint of the tribulation, probably very few, if any, will turn to Christ and accept the gospel. They will in the first half, but I don't think it happens in the second half. And then in the uh, sixth, there's a drying up of the Euphrates so that an army 
different from the one we saw in the sixth trumpet, uh, trumpet judgment. An army from the east can invade from Babylon, which I think it's literal Babylon. Uh, Dr. Woods wrote his PhD dissertation on is Babylon in, in the future literal Babylon or spiritual Babylon? His conclusion was it was neither. No, he said it was literal Babylon. And I concur greatly with it. They did a fabulous job. So then we have this army. Part of the Antichrist capital will be in that literal Babylon, and they will seek to invade and destroy Jerusalem from the east. And then we have the seventh, where there's this great earthquake, an earthquake that destroys the cities of the nations. It splits the great city, which is Jerusalem, into thirds, and it will begin the destruction of Babylon, which is described in Revelation 17 and 18. And this brings us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus Christ returns, he will appear in heaven on his way to the earth. And in Matthew 24, 30, Jesus said, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now at the rapture, nobody sees him. So this is definitely distinct from the rapture. He's in the clouds, but he's visible. Everyone sees him. And he will come and what is known as the uh, Battle of Armageddon, but actually it is a military campaign. The Greek word indicates it's a, it's a campaign, not just one, one battle. And we often think of it as taking place in the Valley of Armageddon, which is from the Hebrew word har, meaning valley, and Megiddo, which is the city of Megiddo, the ruins of the city, ancient city of Megiddo overlook this valley which Napoleon said was so large that all the armies of the earth could do battle there. I don't think that's where the battle takes place. I think that is where the staging area is. If you look at this map that is up on the screen, I don't know, I can get my pointer over there, how great that, that is. Okay, here is number one, the Valley of Armageddon. You see there's this little area right here where the coastline in Israel takes this little indentation. That's where Haifa is located. It's the only deep water port on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. This is where the U.S. fleet can dock with all of their uh, heavy ships. This is where the heaviest uh, tankers can go in. And if you stand there up on the Car Mount Carmel Ridge and look down, you see this huge port and it opens up into this huge valley that's the Valley of Megiddo that runs from the northwest to the southeast uh, down by Megiddo, almost all the way down to the Jordan Valley. And that's a staging area where all of the equipment, all of the men can get, be offloaded in preparation for going into battle. So this is the location of the starting point, the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist. The next thing that happens is that Babylon is destroyed, the capital of the Antichrist. And the text says that smoke from Babylon was seen from Armageddon. It's been destroyed. Then he takes his armies to the south. That's this arrow right here. Takes them to the south and they destroy Jerusalem and capture it and lay siege. And then 
they head south. Now you see this area down here to the south, that's across into Jordan now, that's the area of Petra, which is, there's another city that's mentioned there, Basra, and the scripture says that the Messiah will come up from Basra with his robes dipped in blood. Remember those Jews that were living in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation flee to the mountains, this is where they went. This is a natural enclosure. The word Basra means sheep pen. And it's like a natural enclosure in these mountains, which is where God protects them uh, from the Antichrist up to this point. While they are gathered there, they will call upon the name of the Lord to come and rescue them. This is Israel's national regeneration when they turn to the Lord. The Lord comes and he rescues them and leads them as an army with Judah in the front to Jerusalem in order to defeat the armies of the Antichrist. And that ends the fighting at the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is right below Jerusalem there, also known as the Valley of Kidron. Then the Lord makes a victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives, and then there will be a number of judgments. So we have one abomination of desolation, two beasts, two witnesses. We have three series of divine judgments, the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And then fourth, we have four living creatures. And I have just enough time to touch on this. These four living creatures are mentioned in Revelation 4 and Revelation chapter 5 and a couple of other times as we go through uh, the book of Revelation. When we first see them introduced, it's in Revelation 4, 6, where we read, Before the throne of God was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. These are pictured in the foreground of the image on the screen. Four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. And in this image, you see lined up to the left and right are 24 elders. So this is the scene with the four living creatures who are associated with the 24 elders. Now, we need to understand who those 24 elders are, and we'll get there in a minute. These four living creatures are similar to seraphim and cherubim, a unique order of angels that are directly related to the worship of God. So they are leading worship around the throne of God and they are praising God. And in Revelation 4.11, they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is the first of 14 doxologies. A doxology is a praise to God. 14 doxologies in the book of Revelation, which tells us that, that the tribulation is not just about all the bad things that's going to happen, but it is the answer to the prayers of the saints. And the focal point is on praising God that he has brought victory over sin and evil in human history. These 24 elders, I mean, these uh, four living creatures are surrounded by 24 elders who are representatives of the church. Now, they're not symbolic representatives. They're literal representatives. You had 24 orders of priests in the Old Testament because you had too many priests in Israel for all of them to work all the time. So you divided them up into 24 and you had, you chose by lot those who would come from each order to work in the temple. It's that kind of idea. Now, we know they're representatives of the church for a couple of reasons. One is that 
they are pictured as having crowns, not diademos crowns, which is a crown of a ruler. That's a diadem. They have Stephanos crowns. A Stephanos crown was a wreath crown that was given as a reward to an athlete who had accomplished something, won the games, or to a military victor who had conquered his enemies. And these 24 elders are casting their Stephanos crown. So they've been rewarded. So who can be rewarded by this time? And then Revelation 4.10, we read that the 24 elders fall down in worship before him who sits on the throne and worship him and cast their crowns before him, before the throne, saying, okay, so they are rewarded. So they are rewarded and resurrected and rewarded, we can say that, and they are redeemed. Because when they sing, they are thankful to, God, to, to the Lamb because they say, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now, if you have a King James translation, that's how it reads. If you have a New American Standard or another, it may not even say us. It may say, you have redeemed them. You see... In all but one, or actually two, but one's a really weak manuscript, the Ethiopic, all but two Greek manuscripts say us. That's thousands of manuscripts. They all say us. But there's one important uh, manuscript, the Alexandrian, that says them. And because a lot of translators and theologians couldn't understand us, they translated as them because they've identified the 24 elders as angels. But Christ didn't redeem angels. But if the 24 elders are raptured, redeemed, church-age believers, then they will sing, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. So this is another evidence that the rapture has already occurred, and it's before the tribulation begins, which in is in Revelation chapter 6. But the 24 elders remind us that this is a time of worship. Revelation 7, 9 through 12 is, a number, is another one of these great doxologies. Let me read it to you. After these things, John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. You have all kinds of other numbers, but you can't number the number saved. Isn't that great? We think of the horrors, but there's a great innumerable multitude that is saved. Behold, a great multitude which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne. And the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Some other doxologies are in Revelation 11, 16 to 18, Revelation 15, 3 and 4, Revelation 16, 5 through 7. So this is what we've done. Last night, we looked at the end of the church age at the event called the rapture. This morning, we've looked at the tribulation. 
What have we looked at? One, two, three, and four. Number one is the abomination of desolation. Number two, two beasts, two witnesses. Number three, three series of judgments. Number four, four living creatures. Now that gives you something to hang the details on so that when you read about prophecy, this will help you sort everything out. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to be reminded of the glory that will be brought to you even during this horrific time for your justice and your righteousness will be made evident, but also your grace and your love as an innumerable host will be saved, will be redeemed out of the tribulation period. Father, we are thankful that we live in this church age. We have all the blessings that are ours in Christ. We look forward to the rapture, not that it frees us from tribulation, but that it will join us with our Lord in heaven where we will be forever. This is our message of comfort. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conference and to study these things together. And may they challenge us, encourage us to live for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.